1: the podcast that looks at how Hollywood uses history to talk about today. I'm
2: Leah Parody, And I'm Brian Krim. In our first three episodes this season on revolutions and revolutionaries, we took on the big one, the American Revolution. And boy, uh, there are a lot of lies agreed upon to choose in that one, Right. So we settled on the inevitable revolution, the inherent purity and wisdom of the founding fathers, who, it was told, were the primary movers of events, and finally, that the war was waged between idealistic freedom fighters and corrupt occupiers. That is to say, good guys versus bad guys clearly defined.
1: Episodes four and five are about a genre of film that was very popular in the early 1980s and combined... Heroic Journalism with, to use the parlance of the time, Third World Revolutions. When we began scrolling through films to discuss, we noticed that a bunch of these journalist movies came out during Ronald Reagan's first term. And as we'll discuss later, this is both a reflection of his aggressive, militaristic foreign policy vis-a-vis the Third World and America's willingness in the early 1980s to finally look back on the Vietnam War with a
2: more critical eye. That's right, and uh, if you followed us in season one, we did an episode about journalism and 9-11 called The Fourth Estate Under Siege. We showed how the fourth estate needed a bit of rebranding after getting beat up for dropping the ball on a rock, often submitting to pressure from the Bush administration and really carrying the water for uh, pro-torture policies, for example. In films like Spotlight, Good Night and Good Luck, and The Post, Hollywood icons like Steven Spielberg and George Clooney reassured us the press could still be an honorable watchdog after all.
1: Here in the movies we're looking at today, movie makers use journalism as a tool to explain really complex Political situations in far-off lands to uh, a Western and you know predominantly American audience. Uh, maybe audiences wouldn't have seen them at all if these stories weren't told through the eyes of white protagonists. But the complex histories of revolutions in countries caught in the middle of the bipolar Cold War order of the 1980s are, in some ways, made clear or in the process of making them clear, they're also oversimplifying them. And in this episode, we're going to look at two films about revolutions in Central America, where we see this playing out. And then in the next episode, we'll travel to Asia for further variations on the theme.
2: Yeah. Our first uh, film is Oliver Stone's Salvador, which was released in 1986. And if you can believe it, that's the same year that Platoon was released. So it's you know quite a he was really coming coming into his own in the mid-80s. Um, you might remember we talked about two less than stellar stone films in season one, Alexander and World Trade Center. Um, and we felt bad about that. So we thought we would, you know, take a deep dive into what might be called some classic Oliver Stone. Um, the other film is Under Fire, released in 1983 and directed by action genre specialist Roger Spottiswood. Neither movie is spectacular, but they are both very revealing about the early 1980s zeitgeist surrounding these revolutions and those romantic portraits of of journalists we are talking about. Uh, They also both contain strong performances by actors who have gone off the rails in the years since, or who never got their due or just deserts and and deserve to be noticed.
1: So... What are our lies agreed upon for this theme of of covering the revolution? And in this episode, as we've called it, Viva la Revolucion. Well, the first lie might be that journalists are indeed heroic, driven by a quest for the truth. And a second lie related to that first one is that the readership back home cares what foreign correspondents report, And so the government is held accountable for their foreign policy actions. Uh, Brian, do you want to explain the the third? Because it's more like a set of lies, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think because we are looking at Central America in particular, that the the lies have to be pretty specific to that context. And it kind of takes us back to our first couple of episodes dealing with our own revolution. And so I think we have to understand the the United States – we you know, The first law we want to cover is that the United States was founded in revolution. And so one of our myths about our country and ourselves is that we support the underdog around the world. Like wherever there's oppression, we'll be there. And after all, um, the United States is the leading democratic nation, and therefore it stands to reason that it will support support democratic movements over autocratic forces. Really, this history of of our involvement in Latin America contravenes everything I just said.
1: So Salvador is indeed written and directed by Oliver Stone, although he shares authorship with the subject of the film, the journalist Richard Boyle, whose crazy life and antics that we see on screen uh, seem more like just a day in the life of James Woods, really, than a real life story. But amazingly enough, this is a true story. And just to to take a little aside, we really just don't even know what to say about James Woods at this point. He's kind of infamous now and is sort of a, a caricature, but he was considered to be a kind of first tier actor and was one of Stones' favorites. And he is always compelling to watch. He might even be great, but it's hard to tell.
2: Yeah, it is. It's it's just fun. Uh, well, fun might be. It's interesting to watch him. You're, you just can't turn away, and um, he's his major co-star is another interesting selection. I love been in the casting room here to decide to put these two together. But Jim Belushi plays a hapless San Francisco DJ named Doctor Rock. Amazingly, another real person who uh, gets taken along for the ride to El Salvador with uh, Richard Boyle. The film is at times the craziest, scariest, most bizarre road trip ever. Uh, you have a lot of other notable actors in in this film, including the ubiquitous Michael Murphy, who we talk about in our next episode as well. He shows up in many 80s political dramas. Uh, John Savage um, from The Deer Hunter and uh, the great Mexican actress, elpidia Carrillo, who uh, a lot of people might recognize in the film Predator which came out just a few years later.
1: That's right. Salvador begins with a grainy black and white rendition of actual film footage and an explanation that the events in the film take place between 1980 and 1981. Now, keep in mind that this film was released in 1986. So this is history as far as 1986 is concerned, but we've got to think of it as just being very very recent past that's being covered here and that sense of urgency we feel in the film that there are things still going on that this film touches on the footage that is that grainy black and white footage that it starts with is of an actual massacre of 50 or so demonstrators that took place in January 1980, committed by the new military dictatorship that had in turn overthrown a junta that in turn had deposed the democratically elected left-leaning government in 1979. So what we're seeing here is something that for many Americans is not going to be familiar in its details, but that the kind of moviegoer that would be wanting to go and see Salvador would have a vague understanding that what they were seeing was in fact that that currently there was a dictatorship in place that was run by the military and that it had deposed a democratically elected government.
2: Right, and that first scene, I I started to get excited because I got the sense that Stone was really evoking the 1966 film, The Battle of Algiers. You know, the ultimate template for all films about you know post colonial revolutions, and certainly Stone as a as a historian of film and a, a film student at that time, um, clearly did know what he what he was doing by kind of bringing in that imagery and the editing and the score. So it's it starts off with a really strong sense that this is about a a um a you know a left wing revolution and a authoritarian government trying to suppress it. Uh there's also a note that says the characters are fictionalized, and I hope for Boyle's sake that applies to him too, because you know, James Woods is is rather a caricature, but from what I understand the Boyle is, was not too far off from that mark either. I uh, will do a more thorough job of breaking down the historical context of Salvador a little later. But right now, we just want to give you the plot.
1: Yeah, and so we're, we're first introduced to a really down-and-out Richard Boyle who's you know facing eviction, divorce, uh, and few opportunities to ply his trade as a journalist who specializes in wars, revolutions, genocide. He's chaotic. He's insufferable a terrible husband and father, completely irresponsible. But we do get the sense that he knows his business. We come to understand very quickly that he was in Ireland covering the IRA. He was in Cambodia. He was in Afghanistan. And it seems that El Salvador is next, and that's where he wants to go next. And so he, as one does, grabs his sad sack buddy, Dr. Rock, and literally drives, drives from San Francisco to Central America, hoping to make himself relevant again.
2: Yeah, and as you might expect, the journey is crazy. And as they get closer to San Salvador, you know, the capital, the sense of unease and casual violence increases. Boyle had been there a year earlier when things were much quieter. But this time, however, the dynamic duo, uh, Dr. Rock and Boyle here, barely avoid getting arrested and shot along with the dozens of young students they see piled up along the road on their way to Salvador. So when Boyle reconnects with an old flame, Maria, whose son greets Boyle with great familiarity, we find out her husband has been one of the disappeared by the regime. He likely met the same fate of of these people on on the side of the road.
1: Boyle tries to settle into the country and the circumstances that he left the year earlier, only a year earlier, but he can't help but get sucked deeper into what is becoming more and more of a powder keg. And this powder keg is propped up with U.S. money. And that's happening because of renewed fears that there will be a domino effect in Central America. That once one country falls to communism, then there'll be the next and the next and the next. In this case, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and El Salvador. You know, I've never quite been clear what they're thinking with all of this. You know, next stop, San Diego. I'm, I, anyway. Boyle reconnects with photojournalist that he has worked with before, John Cassidy, who is played by John Savage. And uh, very soon they stumble across grisly scenes of mass execution and burial that uh, indicate that this situation is moving into a far more serious and far more deadly phase. And Cassidy sort of foretells his own fate when he comments to Boyle, You got to get close to the truth. You get too close. You die.
2: Yeah, and that scene it really kind of looks like uh, something out of Dante's Inferno, like the the piles of bodies. It's it's very you know, stunning, really. Uh, and Boyle then becomes he's everywhere. I mean, he's frantic, kind of like we'd expect from James Woods. He's he's flitting from everywhere to every perspective as well. He speaks to human rights groups, priests and nuns, left wing union leaders and politicians, and most instructive for him and us, the audience a group of Reaganite military and diplomatic advisors in the U.S. embassy, which is about to change hands in the sense that it's moving from a Carter administration to a newly elected Reagan administration. Um, spinning crazy tales about Castro pouring arms into the region and sending tanks to the U.S. border, these guys in the embassy are are just basically treating the current ambassador, played by Michael Murphy, who is a Carter appointee, like he's just part of the furniture. So, this is Oliver Stone's chance to document what by 1986 was common knowledge that US funded uh, and supported death squads in El Salvador. We're operating under the guise of just anti communism. Come
0: on, Jack, when are you going to believe what your eyes see and not what military intelligence tells you to, to, to think? Listen, Boyle, we got AWACS, infrared, statements from a defecting FARN commandant, and enough military intel to prove 10,000% that this ain't no civil war, but outright commie aggression. You guys have been lying about that from the beginning. You have not presented one shred of proof <laughs> to the American public that this is anything other than a legitimate peasant revolution. So please don't start telling me about the sanctity of military intelligence, not after Chile, not after Vietnam. I was there, remember? know.
1: And so Boyle begins to see the unholy alliance between U.S. support and the right wing government. And in particular, a political candidate who's who's wanting to sort of be the leader of the next iteration of this right leaning uh, government named Mad Max or nicknamed Mad Max whose party is responsible for assassinating the outspoken Archbishop Oscar Romero, who, of course, was a real historical figure and a purveyor of liberation theology. And and we see Romero in action, bitterly criticizing the government violence and U.S. involvement and also then inaction in his country.
2: Yes, there is a, you know, a great... Uh, Seen with Romero um, giving a speech in Spanish. One thing Stone Stone does—he's pretty authentic with the languages here—and so we recommend you you see it in that scene in particular. Uh, the church itself, as an institution, we have to remember during this time, is really an enemy of the corrupt military dictatorship. Not one—they don't support it. Uh, so as a result, nuns and missionary aid workers were also targeted. And in December 1980 three nuns from Western nations are brutally raped and murdered by pro-government forces. Um, it really happened. And and it, it is depicted in a gratuitous and I think utterly unempathetic way. Yes,
1: I think it's a scene that has to happen because this was so important in terms of, of the motivation of the revolutionary forces, first Romero, uh, then the nuns. But you really do see it as a scene uh, written by and filmed by men. There's just really no sense of, uh, of the action in this scene uh, as anything else, having anything else than kind of a, a real sort of outsider cold gaze on it. And, and as you say, it really is just sort of um, gratuitous as a result, instead of showing us really what would be then the emotional impact of this event on the people of El Salvador. Now, while the ambassador is uh, poised to pull the plug on USAID for El Salvador as a result of these brutal murders, that's the Michael Murphy character, the pro-Reagan faction is by this point now in power because The murder of the nuns took place in December of 1980, and then by the time we flip over into 1981, presto, we have a new administration, Carter's out, Reagan's in, and the new Reagan representatives in the country are not about to pull the plug on U.S.
2: aid um, just because of these murders. Yeah, and you can tell this is the moment when things truly start to disintegrate, and Boyle himself is increasingly targeted as a fly in the ointment. You know, just having a reporter who's as independent as he is is a threat, and so we want to play a, a you know a clip from the film that gets to this because one of the things Oliver Stone likes to do, starting in the mid '80s, is really have a defining scene that really spells out the political context or the message he's trying to get across, and this is the scene where he's. He's really set the stage for this. It's Boyle sitting with a CIA guy, kind of a right-wing State Department guy and like a general. and But they're definitely representing the Reagan perspective of the uh, foreign policy in Latin America. And at the, on the other side is Boyle really running down all the things that they're doing wrong and how they're missing everything that's right in front of their faces. And this is a long historical uh, just. Mess that the United States is responsible for. Uh, we want we we want to play this to show you this tactic of Stone as well. Does he, he needs to insert the political message in a in a nice bite sound bite, and that's what he does here.
0: You've been lying about the number of advisors here. You've been lying about the trainers here on TDY Bullshit. You've been lying about switching so-called humanitarian assistance no. money to Salvadorian military coffers, and you've been lying saying that this war can be won militarily, which it can't. Of course it can't. Oh. I mean, what are the death squads but the brainchild of the CIA? But you'll run with them because they're anti-Moscow. Bullshit. You let them close down the universities, you let them wipe out the best minds in the country, you let them kill whoever they want, you let them wipe out the Catholic Church, and you let them do it all because they aren't commies. And that, Colonel, is bullshit. You know, I'm often asked by people like yourself to examine my conscience, and every now and then I do examine it. What do you find there, Jack? That whatever mistakes we make down here, the alternative would be ten times worse.
1: And there you have that uh, telling line: whatever mistakes we do down here, the alternative is ten times worse. How many times has that been uttered behind uh, the walls of U.S. embassies uh, during the, the Cold War? Uh, I would like to point out, though, here although we're we're still doing our, our kind of our rundown of the film uh, that I'm not sure, you know, this is uh, many people do consider these scenes to be stone at his best, but I always feel that on a certain level, they're actually lazy storytelling because you should be able to incorporate all of this into your film instead of having a single character doing basically like a data dump
2: uh, for all of the viewers. Yeah, I I agree. And as we'll play a little bit later, where there's a retrospective of the film from 2011, it was clear this film almost was done in the same way that Boyle and Dr. Rock (laughs) sort of dealt with things that are just on the fly. And just who knows what, it seemed to be the crazy experience making the film. And I think, this was done just because they didn't have any other explanatory section of the film other than that moment. The scene is kind of meant, I think, to bring some clarity to it. But yeah, I agree with you. It is, It does come off as just lazy at times. I think it gets much better by the time you get to like Wall Street and things. It's it's more subtle.
1: And then back to the plot. Um, once, as we have said, that we have the Carter appointee gone, um, and uh, all of Boyle's uh, uh, dressing down of these officials, the falls on on deaf ears, the U.S. troops who have already been in El Salvador sort of in secret come out into the open, as do the weapons that come flowing in. And by this point, Boyle, who's been denied the visas for Maria and and her family, he's desperate to escape with Maria. Of course, uh, Poor John Cassidy, as we've already sort of foreshadowed, he gets both his iconic shot in a battle, but he is also killed. And the movie ends with Boyle managing to smuggle Maria and her surviving son to the U.S., but their bus is boarded and Maria is discovered. Now, it's a very different experience watching this in 2021 after the misery of the Trump years. And so the casually ejecting of the most vulnerable uh, to their fate off of this bus has has quite a substantial impact when you're watching it uh, today. And the film does end with a note explaining that Boyle is still searching for Maria, um, who was reportedly in a Guatemalan refugee camp. Um, And then we are also uh, reassured that uh, Dr. Rock uh, made it back
2: safely uh, as well. Under Fire uh, actually comes out a few years earlier in 1983, and it deals with events in in a neighboring country of Nicaragua. Uh, Under Fire is directed by Roger Spottiswood, who did a lot of popular action drama movies like 48 Hours, uh, Shoot to Kill, and the Pierce Brosnan James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, It was written by Clayton Froman and Ron Shelton. Uh, Shelton wrote a lot of sports movies, including the brilliant Bull Durham, as well as White Men Can't Jump and others. So with a pedigree like that, you can see that this movie is meant to be a good story, you know, not a fiery political rant. Nevertheless, it, it is filmed much closer to the period of upheaval in Nicaragua that it depicts, and it hinges on some pretty grim and cynical plot points. So the fact that it's a first film for both Spot Wood and Shelton in the sense that it's you know political, suggests that they might have been uncertain yet where their artistic voice would land.
1: The cast is a great example of who's who in the ne- early 1980s in you know sort of the commercial films that are expected to get a big audience in Hollywood. You have Gene Hackman as Alex Grazier, a popular TV reporter with aspirations to be an anchor. And you have Nick Nolte as Russell Price, who is, and Nick Nolte was, uh, this is when he was probably at his hottest, uh, who is a photojournalist who comes across kind of as a boil light uh, in this film. And then we have the great Joanna Cassidy playing Claire, typical for the time her character isn't even given a last name, but Joanna Cassidy is Always fantastic and uh, I think should have had a a more of a starring, you know, highly visibility career. But quite frankly, I think that she was an actress type of that time that would do very well today. But I think that Hollywood didn't quite know what to do with her uh, in the late 70s and early 1980s except have her uh play replicants in uh <laughs> Blade Runner right. and f- journalists
2: in uh in Under Fire. Yes, and I think in Blade Runner she also just had a one name as well <laughs> as a replicant. But I agree she she was really <laughs> um um it was refreshing to see honestly in this film. Uh, they you know the, the three of them make a love triangle and it's dropped right in the middle of Nicaragua in 1979. And a lot of the time, the plot can't decide if we are supposed to care more about their love lives or the you know, impending collapse of the Somoza regime.
1: There are also some other great actors passing through this film, including a young Ed Harris as a creepy mercenary named Oates. Richard Mazur, who was a character actor you found everywhere in the 1980s. Uh, I think he was even a regular character on Rhoda. Uh, but you saw him in all sorts of films across all sorts of genres, and here he's playing a slimy political consultant working for Samosa. And then we have the great French actor Jean-Louis Trintignant, who is known for his work in such classics as Bertolucci's masterpiece *Il Conformista*. Also, Trintignant's French insouciance is put to great use here as, uh, uh, and that's, I think, part of the reason why they've cast him, uh, because he's playing Marcel Jazzy, a spy who does Samosa's dirty work while supposedly working for the French embassy.
2: Yeah, he he was uh, kind of a breath of fresh air as well in this. Uh, Under Fire begins with an explanatory note about Samosa's long and corrupt reign coming to an end. But our first action involving the trio of characters takes place in Chad in Africa. Like all the movies in our two episodes on journalism and revolution, reporters are sometimes as mercenary as crazy Ed Harris. And so you see that here. They're constantly chasing action and tragedy to get the right picture or soundbite or clickbait, for lack of a better phrase. So Alex, Russell, and Claire are seem to be already indifferent to where they are it's it's all about just being first
1: yeah once they relocate from Chad to Nicaragua Claire has this great line you're going to love this war good guys bad guys and cheap shrimp <laughs> it's the very jaded worldview of Western reporters who can drop in and out of hot zones and never have to get too close to
2: the misery yeah and they you know it's all about The alcohol and the appetizers and, and, you know, good fast story they can jump right into. So as they're in Nicaragua, as they travel across the country, Russell and Claire do get a sense of the rebels who, strangely enough, are never identified as Sandinistas and the mythical commander, someone named Rafael, uh, kind of looks like Daniel Ortega, but it's not him. So you have to wonder, you know, why they bothered to kind of create this fake element when it's news, certainly, in the 1980s. But however, Somoza is a character in the film and is cartoonishly stupid and vain. He's played very well by uh, Rene Enriquez, who people, oh, people of a certain age will instantly recognize as Ray Caltano from Hill Street Blues. Um, there's also a lot of violence, you know, government killings, and you guessed it, Ed Harris killing anyone and everyone.
1: And really the most
2: dramatic moment in the
1: movie involves the murder of Alex at the hands of government troops uh, who then immediately blame the killing on leftist rebels it's uh, it's very effective the way that it's filmed because we see the action through the lens of Nick Nolte's camera because he's using it the zoom on it to be able to see closer what's happening and so We have the sort of graininess of this lens and him with the camera. And then on top of that, I think it's also very, very impactful because it is based on a real incident. The murder of ABC reporter Bill Stewart and his translator Juan Espinoza by Nicaraguan National Guard troops in June of 1979. So much like in Salvador, there are these key real events that are woven into the fictional account and that we need to remember with Salvador and then particularly with Under Fire, which was filmed and released closer to the events that it's depicting, that there would be people in the audience who would think to themselves, ah, this is a fictionalized recounting
2: of this real event that got a lot of coverage. And as in Under Fire, the the real shooting was caught on film and kind of marked the end of the Carter administration's relationship with Somoza, whose regime fell just a month later. Uh, So you have these moments in the film that also deal with journalistic ethics. And at one point, Russell breaks his loosely held code of ethics and agrees to stage a photo of Raphael, this um, mythical leader, still alive in hopes of preventing further violence. So he's actually taking sides with the rebels by doing this. And so at the end of the film, Russell and Claire are also celebrating along with everyone else in Managua as if they were part of the revolution, really obviously crossing a line if you're going to have one about ethics and journalism. Uh, And meanwhile, however, Ed Harris, who shot dozens of leftists, is also enjoying the celebration, drinking a Cuba Libre like nothing happened.
1: Yes. And um, now, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of clips from Under Fire that we can play for you because the main characters being photojournalists mean that a lot of the action and exposition happens visually more than it happens through dialogue. But we both happen to love 1980s movie trailers and the one for under fire doesn't disappoint so let's play that and also take a walk down memory lane as we enjoy the deep voiced announcer nicaragua
3: 1979 it's
0: june 10th the evacuation of leon
3: their job is reporting the news They freeze truth in pictures. They put war into words. Forget the Pope, Charlie. You got the Pope someplace every week. Big story down here because it's the first sign of fighting in Managua. Were you guys making it before she's living? No. For God's sake, Alex, we're friends. But they fell in love in a country under fire. What's that I mean, huh? I'll take sides, I'll take pictures. We all know the revolutionaries are going to win, don't we?
4: Who's Raphael?
0: Comandante Rafael, the most popular leader of the most popular democratic revolution.
3: Who can they trust? Are you a spy, aren't you? Nobody a spy anymore.
0: And you're a business
3: man? That sounds good. I'm a journalist. They are threatened by the army. Your camera. Lied to by the president. Rafael is dead. He has been killed in an ambush near Matagalpa. I think Rafael is alive. I'm going to find him. What can they believe? He knew I'd find Rafael. He wanted me. They are used by the CIA. You are murder. Murder? Murder is a word for criminals. I have a job to protect the stability of a continent. Betrayed by the mercenaries. You get paid by the hour or by the body. I get paid the same way you do. Until they see too much. Something happening to us.
4: Yeah, I think it is.
3: Until they feel too much. Until they must take action. The most is killed. Them. I thought the war would end soon. How many reasons do you want? Action that could cost them their lives. <laughs> on this roll of film, in the camera of a U.S. photojournalist, under fire on all sides, is one hell of a picture. Nick Nolte, Gene Hackman, Joanna Cassidy, Jean-Louis Trintignant, under fire.
2: Yes, we have to have In a World, where Nick Nolte is unleashed in Central America. That's, that's You got to love that. In a World is always a good, a good one. All right, so let's revisit our lies agreed upon for this episode and dig deeper into the very specific historical context of these two films. Um, The first lie is about the hero journalist, almost always a male with a drinking problem, but a good soul beneath it all. Their work actually means something, don't you know?
1: And the second lie is that the reporter's audience, whether in print or TV, actually care and react, pressuring governments who supposedly also care to do the right thing because of investigative journalism.
2: The third lie is actually two lies about the Central American revolutions depicted in Salvador and under fire, specifically the U.S. role in both causing them and making them worse. The first you know, sub-lie, the United States was founded in revolution and supports the underdog around the world. And two, the United States is the leading democratic nation and therefore supports democratic movements over autocratic forces.
1: Yes, and let's let's take the last one first. Since the ins and outs of these revolutions, they are kind of confusing, even if you paid
2: attention to them at the time. So let's remember that the Reagan administration came to Washington determined to combat communism, especially in Latin America. Reagan and his, and his advisors focused in particular on El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Cuba. Secretary of State Alexander Haig decided to make El Salvador a test case of his foreign policy, basically backing the right-wing military junta in its brutal suppression of the FMLN.
1: So Boyle in Salvador is going back and forth between these two, the right-wing military junta and the FMLN. But back in the U.S., there were conflicts between the Reagan administration and Congress, and these frustrated the administration's bold plans. So while Haig fought for a significant increase in military assistance in El Salvador, Congress made certification of progress on human rights a quid pro quo for that military assistance. And so the two branches of government regularly clashed over assistance and certification. And so you see the beginning of this dynamic in Salvador when it was still technically Carter's foreign policy, but where we have this tension
2: uh with all of the the, the players on the scene. Right. And occurring almost simultaneously in Under Fire, is is the Nicaraguan Revolution, which actually spanned decades. The rising opposition to Somoza in the 1960s and 70s was led by the Sandinista National Liberation Front, which finally ousted Somoza in a Civil War, which is in the film, beginning in the countryside in 1978 and culminating in capturing the capital of Managua in 1979. The Sandinistas immediately faced rebels of their own with the US-backed Contras, Tens of thousands died as both the U.S. and Soviet Union poured money into the region until 1990 when a truce ended the conflict. Daniel Daniel Ortega is still holding on to power, and it seems as if he's putting off some Somoza vibes of his own. Much like Mugabe in Zimbabwe, sadly, the freedom fighter often becomes the dictator.
1: In April of 1983, Ronald Reagan asked to speak to a joint session of Congress about Central America, specifically on El Salvador and Nicaragua, the setting for our films this week. And right there, that's an indication to our listeners how central to uh, U.S. foreign policy their Central American policy was, and also... How front and center the events of this region were in the American awareness of what's going on elsewhere in the world. Remember that Vietnam had ended just a few years earlier, and now Central America is kind of taking the cultural place of Vietnam in terms of the the shift towards where Americans who believe in things like the you know domino fear theory where their fears are oriented and where those who are were protesting vietnam and who see the the events or the the justifications of the bipolar world order as as you know problematic to say the least like that their their attention is also turning to central america as the next stage where all of this is is playing out. And so in this clip we've got Ronald Reagan talking big strategy, grand ideals, and pay attention to his Nazi reference. It's kind of a a sure thing if you lean on Nazis when you want to scare people into submission.
5: It would be hard to find many Americans who aren't aware of our stake in the Middle East, the Persian Gulf, or the NATO line dividing the free world from the communist bloc. But in spite of, or maybe because of, a flurry of stories about places like Nicaragua and El Salvador, and yes, some concerted propaganda. Many of us find it hard to believe we have a stake in problems involving those countries. Too many have thought of Central America as just that place way down below Mexico that can't possibly constitute a threat to our well-being. Central America's problems do directly affect the security and the well-being of our own people. And Central America is much closer to the United States than many of the world trouble spots that concern us. El Salvador is nearer to Texas than Texas is to Massachusetts, but nearness on the map doesn't even begin to tell the strategic importance of Central America. Bordering as it does in the Caribbean, two-thirds of all our foreign trade and petroleum pass through the Panama Canal and the Caribbean. It's well to remember that in early 1942, a handful of Hitler's submarines sank more tonnage there than in all of the Atlantic Ocean. And they did this without a single naval base anywhere in the area. And today the situation is different. Cuba is host to a Soviet submarine base capable of servicing Soviet submarines and military air bases visited regularly by Soviet military aircraft. You may remember that last month speaking on national television I showed an aerial photo of an airfield being built in the island of Grenada. But if that airfield had been completed those planes could have refueled there and completed their journey if the nazis during world war ii and the soviets today could recognize the caribbean and central america as vital to our interest shouldn't we also
2: you can tell by reagan's speech here that it's in the grand scheme of things this is a global cold war and you should, you know, and you should you really care about death squads and dead leftist students or peasants or the indigenous peoples? Reagan was hoping the answer was no, and and you won't hear much rhetoric on safeguarding democracy in Central America here. And there's no scarier word in U.S. foreign policy than revolution. So when I listened to Reagan, it's clear Oliver Stone was was you know using these embassy goons in Salvador to embody these paranoid delusions at the heart of, of early Reagan era foreign policy.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting, Brian, when I teach, I teach a course on the Cold War and film. And it's always interesting when I teach the Central American stuff to my students, and I give them these uh, unclassified CIA how-to manuals, basically sort of how to undermine any populist uprising and how to keep authoritarian dictators in power as long as they promise not to be communists. And it's really interesting how my students have to completely recalibrate their sense of their identity, their national identity as Americans, because, you know, as as you just said, you know, there's no scarier word in U.S. foreign policy than revolution. And yet the American national identity is so tied up with this idea of being born out of revolution And so, you know, we're hoping that with these episodes, both the ones that are on the American Revolution and now moving to revolutions in other places and looking at how Americans consumed them through movies, to see just how big of a gap there is between the sense of ourselves and then how our nation has acted in our name when it comes to revolutions all around the world.
2: Yeah, in a way, that this really does capture the theme of the season, you know, not that the United States is front and center in a lot of our episodes at all, but certainly how the West or you know imp- legacies of imperialism, and the US is certainly part of that in the 20th century, have made the West really the, the ones fearful of revolution instead of those that actually would support a meaningful democratic one. And that's certainly what you're getting from Reagan here. Um, it also ha- helps us think about how how do we look back on these Central American revolutions decades later? And we came across a, a 2011 panel discussion with Oliver Stone and James Woods revisiting Salvador. It's a Lincoln Center screening um, where they have a, a discussion afterwards. And we wanted to play a, a little bit of that because certainly Oliver Stone has had time to think about what was driving him to make the film in the 1980s, having himself lived through Vietnam, and of course at the same time making uh, Platoon, how how he draws the connection between uh, Central America and Vietnam, as we just did in in our episode here.
4: The movie was always financially in dire shape, so I said, I gotta, this is probably the last movie I make, I really thought so. I'm going to throw in everything I feel about this situation. And I, actually, we fought for it all the way through. People wanted to cut it, of course, for various reasons, talky and all that, but no, we stuck with it, and we said we're going to make this movie, for, although it is a little bit uh, static, but, you know. The argument is, is remains a valid one. It's still an argument that exists to this day, and if, uh, who thought in 1986 that this thing was going to get even worse? I mean, we thought Vietnam was, was, was in the the issue of vietnam was behind us it, it was i was shocked when i went to South, central america and i saw american soldiers all over honduras fighting the the contras uh, in in nicaragua against the the revolutionaries it was it was all deja vu and i was shocked uh, and that's why this movie got made because we didn't want another vietnam but we didn't see what was coming
2: well now's a good time to open things up and discuss what connects not just these two films but our films next week the Year of Living Dangerously, and The Killing Fields. And that is the culture of journalism in this late Cold War era. Now, Richard Boyle and the Gang of Three and Under Fire are prototypical, egotistical, difficult, single-minded reporters who take on the big, bad, corrupt US government and score some moral victories. Now, they got the story. They showed some personal growth and shed some of their angelic light on the plight of the sad foreign people, usually ignored by the West. Yay, journalists! <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is absolutely true, but there are also some great quotes in Under Fire, which is interesting because it it has the appearance of being the more romantic and um, and commercial of the two films, but... There are some great quotes that really get to a more cynical look at this narrative and and in some ways I would almost argue that they're more effective because they're not snide line number 47 in a barrage of snide lines that, that runs through at, uh, you know, uh, like machine gun fire pace uh, that you get in Salvador, it, there is a slower pace to under fire. And so there are perhaps moments for a little bit more deliberative thought about what it is that people are, are saying. So for example, There's this one point where Russell Price, that's the Nick Nolte character, is sharing a cell with a priest who asks him, what side are you on? And at that point, Russell insists, I don't take sides, I take pictures. But that then allows him to kind of go on the journey by which by the time he gets to the end of of the film, that perspective is just unsustainable and he actually does take sides. And part of that is that Alex is killed, the Gene Hackman character, and Samosa's goons are set loose on all reporters. So, you know, you as the reporter might not take sides, but the regime is taking a side against you.
2: Yeah, and after Alex is killed, Claire only hears about it on the news, ironically. I think that's a deliberate narrative device there. Um, She's in a hospital where there's all dead and dying all around her. And so she sees the news flash about Alex's death, including the images of it. Um, and she breaks down and a rebel nurse who is watching her and uh, as they're all surrounded by dead bodies, you know, she kind of just is rather curt with her and says, you know, look, 50,000 Nicaraguans died and now one Yankee. Perhaps we should have killed an American journalist 50 years ago. And and that's a, it's brutal. It's a harsh line, but it's absolutely, I think, exposing this hypocrisy that, you know, we, we are um, in our little bubble. We, we care about ourselves and are indifferent to the really decades of murderous violence in the country you're now su- purporting to be an expert on. And, and so that's how you're right. I think that's a, a, an indication of how this film can kind of sneak up on you with, by giving you some good points and not all just a you know, romantic drama.
1: And I think that we mentioned earlier the that great line about the, you know, cheap sh- shrimp, you know, that uh, where the reporters are portrayed as mercenaries of a kind, much like Ed Harris's actual mercenary, you know, these reporters covering revolutions films often has that Component. This idea that they are at heart mercenaries, and again, in under fire, you get a bit more of an examination of that because it's built into the the character arc of the development of these characters. Whereas in um, in Salvador, that arc is a bit flatter. You know, Boyle comes in as cynical as opposed to necessarily idealistic and comes out as cynical but also caring about the people in a more concrete way. Uh, Here we start with, you know, crazy Ed Harris uh, at one point, you know, snipes to Russell when Russell is starting to make that shift from mercenary photojournalist to someone who's going to take sides, you know, Ed Harris says, I get paid the same way you do, right? And, and so this, this equating of these two kinds of mercenary behavior is quite blunt in, in Under Fire.
2: Yeah, and also on the other side, you see that the rebels know how to play these reporters and manipulate them almost the same way Somoza does. You now Somoza is just obvious about it. But you see this instance where a translator who works for the hotel that most of the reporters stay in is she's actually a rebel in disguise. And she gets Alex, Claire, and Russell to to kind of cover the story she wants them to cover. And she does it by appealing to their ego and to their ambition. She says, Oh, it's a good story. You'll be more famous. And at that point, you don't know that she's a rebel, but it's very clever. And it just shows just how not only do they think very little of journalists, but they truly understand that there's a PR part of this that uh, goes along with any revolution. And we we see that really in our next, our, our first, these last, these two episodes get into that element as well as, you know, revolution is, is also theater. And this translator knew that as well.
1: And another part of the historical context I think that we want to be aware of when we're looking at this line number one, that the hero journalist uh, BS, is we've got to remember that these films are being made in the early, 19, early and mid-1980s. And of course, in the cultural history of the United States, this is coming right after the most quintessential example of Of heroic journalist narrative, Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein. And so it actually, to us today, we're more cynical. But in the early 80s, the ideal of the journalists who are kind of our last great stand against the desecration of the Constitution, which is sort of how the Watergate narrative plays out with you know, all the president's men and that to be focusing on the mercenary nature of journalists, even then, if to have them change their ways, to to be focusing on it that way in the 1980s is actually quite a shift from that idealization of journalists from just those few years earlier in the 70s. Now I think the rose colored glasses are pretty much off and most of us would just like to have real journalism every now and then, you know, no
2: need to be heroic, just truthful. Yes. Yeah, so and when you, when you talk about and remember Watergate and the Pentagon Papers, et cetera, uh, it's uh their journalism mattered, and so lie number two in these films is harder to get at, which is does it matter do does journalists reporting on revolutions make any difference? Did Richard Boyle change anything with his reporting or john you know john cassidy's uh photograph that got him killed did it actually matter? know what about our three lovers and under fire now, they they try to make a connection between alex's murder and Carter suspending aid to Somoza. And we noted the real story behind that earlier, but Reagan immediately restored that aid times a thousand. Uh, and so we're left with, you know, a, a more difficult nut to crack here, which is does uh, heroic journalism and when it comes to, to, to covering revolutions actually make a difference in truly informing the public? And does it have, um, do, do governments actually respond to the, some of the things they discover? And that's maybe a little more hard, more, more difficult to get at in these two films. By way of conclusion, we, we like to do our recommendations. And I, I recommend both films with uh, some qualifiers. I, I, I was just just riveted by Salvador, but not because it was just, as we noted, a kind of gonzo filmmaking adventure. But I don't. I didn't like it as much as I remember I thought uh, I did when I first saw it. And maybe it's because I, you know, it's too much Oliver Stone, or I, I see just where where all of his faults lie as a filmmaker and a personality showing up in Salvador. But it, I think it's an important film because of of uh, the subject matter. Uh, Under Fire, I didn't. I had never heard of honestly, and. Um, and i didn't have much expectations for it but i but i think as we noted it does sneak up on you with with some interesting dialogue and points to be made about the ethics of journalism as well as really what drives american foreign policy is it just being i insular and and self obsessed or is there a possibility for empathy for other people uh, even through the through the lens of a journalist and i think in a way it, it it gets to that despite being you know a hollywood romantic drama so i recommend both because they do get to our point here about hollywood choosing to use journalists to uh cover third world revolutions that tends to be what was the dominant way of thinking about them in the uh the 1980s at least
1: yeah, and I agree with your evaluation of both of them. And and it's important to mention to our listeners if they're um, uh, thinking about whether to watch these movies that, you know, both of these movies are very economical. They, they're an hour and a half long, each of them. They do a lot in a very little amount of time. And I agree that Salvador is both riveting and also not the movie that I remember. And I think it's really part of that is that it's very interesting to think about the journey that we go on as viewers over time and that we never are returning to the same thing because we're not the same person when we, uh, when we return to them. And that I've definitely found with Salvador. And the other thing to, to I think say about it is that in both cases, there are real choices made by the filmmakers in terms of how they look that, play into the message that the movies are trying to convey or, you know, what they're trying to do. And and I think that's one of the reasons why Under Fire sort of sneaks up on you because it looks lovely. It's very beautiful. It's filmed really well. And in a way, I think that that's sort of intentional because it kind of lulls you into the sense that this is going to be some kind of romantic travelogue which is kind of a slightly more um, romantic version of, hey, you know, cheap shrimp, right? Like that you're supposed to think about it as if it's this kind of fluff, unimportant thing. And then you realize that you've landed in something that for other people, our life, you know, is a life and death situation. And, and that, that journey, I think it, it does better than, than you imagine it's going to when you first start
2: the film. Well, we hope you will uh, join us for episode five where we take our journalists and revolutions east and talk about uh, the films of the Year of Living Dangerously, which is set in 1965 Indonesia and The Killing Fields set primarily in 1975 to 1979 Cambodia. This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was also edited by Leah, and the theme music was written by Mike Patterson. Check out our website, livesagreedupon.com, for more on each episode, including clips and links to the films discussed. Be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at Upon. That's at lies underscore upon.